Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike. And with Ian. And we are rereading the books of our favorite author. You guess who he is. The Aubrey Matron canon. Ian, would you catch us up a little bit as to where we were in Patrick O'Brien's readings last week? With great pleasure, Mike. Last time we were in Chapter 5 of Post-Captain at our newer, slower pace, one chapter at a time. In Chapter 5, Jack and Stephen had been at sea and been captured by the Bellon, a French privateer, on the way home, as they were, from Gibraltar aboard an Indiaman. They'd been reunited with our old friend Tom Pullings, and they went through several actions as captives before finally being rescued by a Royal Navy squadron. This week, it's a whole new world. We're ashore. Jack is going to meet with the new First Lord of the Admiralty. He and Stephen will attend Queenie's rout, her party in other words, and they're going to reunite with some Sussex neighbours. Watch out though, beware of bailiffs, of footpads, and beware of what you wish for, especially when you're back on shore. Oh, danger signals here, Mike. Let's see what we find as we explore this, this chapter. What do you say? All righty. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. Well, we've had Jack walking into the Admiralty, and we start kind of being reminded about Jack's position back in England here. His hackney coachman, Jack had hired this hackney coach to protect his best dress uniform from the ankle-deep mud and storm. This coachman shames him for his poor tip. So Jack really, you know, not two pennies to rub together here. Waiting to be seen, they're watching Jack He's thinking about the mud on his shoes. He's thinking about having only one good handkerchief that he can do anything with. The possibility of becoming rich again if the interview with the First Lord goes well. And about the small satisfactions you can only have when you're poor. <laughs> O'Brien writes, little satisfactions of contriving. The triumph of a guinea found in an old waistcoat pocket. The breathless tension over the turn of a card. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is this is going to be a big chapter, a long chapter, but it's just full of this fabulous writing. You know, these like these little phrases. Here it is. You know, we're in the middle of all this, but a little bit of introspection. It's small. It's insightful. And it just gives yeah. you that opportunity to kind of think about our lives, our attitudes, our perspectives. And here's Jack pondering his like, you know, I'm poor, but hey, there are some really nice things about this as I think about it here. <laughs> it's so great, isn't it? Right, kind of up close, first person writing when we've had all of this kind of big grand scenes in action. So we're in a fairly grand scene here as Jack is at the Admiralty. He's with Lord Melville, the new First Lord, and he and Jack exchange greetings and inquiries and how is the family. Jack gets to congratulate Melville on his, on his peerage. Lord Melville notes that Jack had had something of a lively time coming home, and Jack is kind of surprised that this is news. Apparently one of the Mrs. Lamb had given an account of the Indiaman's capture and then recapture to one of the London papers, and to Jack's appalled shock, had mentioned him by name. Jack, meanwhile, had had to borrow money to rush from Plymouth to London, had stopped only to get some cash from his father. He had thought that he would have got into London before the debt collectors would know that he was back. But with this news in the paper from the Lamb Girls, it's too late. Jack says, well, I got back as quickly as I could, and in, in this slightly comic Scottish accent that Patrick O'Brien loves to write with, 
Um, Lord Melville says, well, I'm sure, Captain Aubrey, you used your best endeavours, but I only wish you could have gotten back months earlier before, in his phrase, all the plums were gone. And Jack, just a few paragraphs back in the previous chapter, had been talking about spreading more canvas to snap up a plum. The plums, though, are gone, says Lord Melville. Maybe I could do something for you. Maybe something on land, he says. Maybe the sea fencibles or the impress service. And we don't have to go too far to understand those because Jack says, well, those things aren't going to work for me. I, I need to be afloat. I could be arrested for debt. So he does know, though, that he can't refuse if the First Lord makes a firm offer. So he kind of intervenes to steer the conversation a little bit. He says he'd like a plum, he'd like a post ship, but he'll take anything afloat with the rank of commander or better. He just says he wants to be at sea again. He says, I will make sure the lordships don't regret any such decision. And he gets, I think, Mike, about as far as he can with Melville. Melville says, I'm not going to make you any kind of promises. There are no stipulations here, even though your friends have made what he calls a great deal of clack um, about him being made post for the Cacafuego action. Jack, remembering his tricky encounter with the previous First Lord, says, no, 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 no stipulations. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Well, says Melville, I can't promise anything, but come and see me next week. And meanwhile, he's going to take a look at this post-captain rank decision. So tiny, tiny chinks of light here, I think, for Jack. Meanwhile, as Jack steps away, Lord Melville says, ah, and I'll see you at Lady Keith's tonight. So the promise of a little possibility of a possible job and some social time, things are looking up a little bit for Jack here. What do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. And we're not the only ones who think so. The Admiralty Porter, Tom, thinks so as well. So he tags Jack as he comes out of Melville's office saying he looks very cheerful. Mm-hmm. W-E-R-Y, I love that. And yeah, yeah. Jack said, oh, well, you know, I had such a good walk this morning. It really set me up. And Tom goes, yeah, he's not buying that. He presses him because he knows he's due to be part of that shower of cash if Jack was offered something copper-bottomed, as the yeah. text says. Well, Jack says, yeah, uh, you know, things didn't exactly work out, but hopefully I'm looking forward to something anyways. Well, Jack is kind of looking past the windows there. He's looking at all these people out there. He suspects everybody of being a potential debt collector. And then he tells Tom that he came out without a cloak or any money and ask him to call a coach and lend him half a guinea. So, boy, instead of being the receiver of a shower of, of gold, yeah. Tom's like, oh, my gosh. But Tom knows how helpless sea officers are ashore. You, you were so right about that, Tom. Yeah, yeah. And he thinks, you know, I think something's coming Jack's way. So even if it's an onshore appointment, it's going to set him up pretty well. He lends Jack the money and he gets a coach and brings it in close where Jack can jump into it which Jack does. He rides off with his hat pulled down over his nose. He's huddled in the coach corner, looking at all the people outside. He's looking for bailiffs, but what he's seeing is all these cheerless faces in, as O'Brien writes, the wet, anxious, cold, gray, yellow stream of people jostling, pushing past one another like an ugly dream. You know, Jack knows there's an occasional pretty shop girl or servant but he thinks that only makes it more heart-renderingly pathetic. 
Wow. Oh. And that's, that's not a great scene there that he's looking. But uh, there's something that comes along that does cheer him up a little bit better here. Right. So down the road, Jack sees some farmers. Like we, we've seen all kinds of members of society. This is the first, and if not not quite only, but this is one of the very rare times we meet the the, the landed folk of of British society here, and they're marching through London, uh, doing some kind of some kind of folk ceremony thing here. Maybe they're protesting taxes or something. I don't know, but. These farmers with their bright, shiny faces are bringing hay wagons into town. Their horses are decorated, and Jack recalls this phrase in Latin. O fortunatus nimium sua si bona norint agricolas. He remembers this from his school days, and yeah, good, good job, Jack. I couldn't have remembered that from my school days. He wishes, he thinks, if only Stephen were here to hear it, and maybe they'll see these farmers again, although when they're on the way to Queenie's route so that he can flash it out and impress Stephen with his Latin. So here we go, Mike. O fortunatus nimium sua si bono norent agricolas. Help us out there. I think we've been getting some help on the Latin side of things, right? Yes, yes. Karen Ruff, our consulting medieval Latinist. You know, she traces this back to Virgil's Georgics, book two, lines 458 and 459. Now, the, the O'Brien kind of translation here the guide to the perplexed says, you know, oh, how extremely happy could farmers be if only they could count their blessings or understand their possessions. Karen pointed us back to a, a really nice full translation here. It reads, oh, farmers, more than happy if they've realized their blessings, for whom earth unprompted supreme injustice pours out a rich livelihood from her soil far from the clash of armies. I'm thinking, whoa, okay. So not only is it this idyllic scene, but also far from the clash of armies. And it occurs to me, and this comes right on the heels of Jack recalling the satisfactions, you know, that he'll no longer have if he becomes rich again, being so put off by the city life he's witnessing on the streets. And it's interesting that, that this poem and the whole section that contains this line talks about the joys of living in a just, respectful you know, virtuous life in the country rather than envying sort of the riches of the cities, seeking the honors of the crowd, fighting wars, seeking praise, being delighted in steeping themselves in their brother's blood in exile, the poem talks about. I mean, mm. Wow. So it says, you know, all these things, they forego that, but they live long lives blessed with honest work, harvest, friends, and family. And I, I think that the contrasts in this section of the poem are well worth a read. Um, and it may mirror or foreshadow a little comparison that Jack considers later in this chapter. So I'm going to reach for a pin. And in the yeah. meanwhile, we'll try to pop this translation out on social media and say, thank you, Karen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Karen. Ah, oh, jealous of farmers. Hey, well, meanwhile, This passes, and Jack is at home. He's back in Hampstead, and he's reporting that he was pleased that for the first time, a First Lord has been happy to see him. And he's telling Stephen some of the uh, details of this interview. And they both agree that coming from a man like Lord Melville, this possibility of some remote possibility next week, and this possibility of reconsidering the promotion, both sound like pretty strong candidates for some, some good news here. Stephen believes this with some conviction, since... He, it says, 
had had his own dealings with Lord Melville, the gentleman who had been in command of the secret funds these many years past. And Mike, I think we really see Stephen's intelligence career as flowering in this novel, but it seems like we're getting a bit of a bit of retconning here, a bit of retroactive continuity. Stephen's known about secret funds and who's been in control of them for many years. Huh. What do you think's going on here? Yeah, I, I'm with you, Ian. I, I missed this in past readings. And, and I thought to myself, whoa, wait a minute. We see this debate all the time on Facebook here. And I was thinking to myself, well, it, you know, it kind of would be reasonable that, you know, as we think back from some of the history in Master and Commander and Stephen's history, and, and, and I'm kind of thinking ahead to where we get a little bit more retcon in other books, it'd be reasonable that Stephen's horror of what happened in the French Revolution following kind of right on the heels of what he witnessed in Ireland in 78 and his desire for Catalan independence, as well as his intense desire to see Napoleon defeated, would have made Stephen a fabulous intelligence agent recruit anytime from 1799 on. And we've heard that they knew about Stephen's connections in that Irish uprising. So they might have had a little bit of a yeah, so I don't know. That it's it's a point in favor, certainly, of those who believe Stephen was working with the Admiral Lee during during Master and Commander, even though it's never mentioned in that book. So on the one hand, we could say, as as I you know, every once in a while, a good friend reminds me, these are not real characters, Mike. It's not real history. But <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I want was he was he not? Well, O'Brien has sort of masterfully woven it in. I will say that it's really clever, isn't it? And it keeps us speculating. Now, speaking of speculation, let's talk about money, because Jack and Stephen have both been completely stripped of their possessions and all their fortune by the taking uh, of the merchantman by the Bellon. They're living on funds from one small bill, a discounted bill, a bill of exchange. It says laboriously negotiated by General Aubrey, that's Jack's father, and also on the hope of Stephen being able to draw on another bill from a Barcelona merchant, which, of course, raises some difficulties about whether this merchant's going to be known by the bankers in London. So they're living together in some kind of cottage. It sounds pretty idyllic, near Hampstead Heath that belongs to a friend of Jack. And Mike, we talked about this when we did our first reading of Post Captain many, many, many months ago, about how them living together is, is almost an old couple kind of set up here. And it's funny and very touching how different they are as domestic men. They were looking after themselves, it says in the text, living with rigid economy. There was no greater proof of their friendship than the way their harmony withstood their very grave differences in domestic behavior. In Jack's opinion, Stephen was little better than a slut, which is, <laughs> which is pretty harsh, but probably that's the word that Jack Adams mind. So Stephen is very messy. While Jack, living in an apron as he scurries around the place, is trying to keep everything shipshape. He's collecting and washing up stuff as Stephen chides him about what he calls this peevish attention to cleanliness, busy preoccupation with dirt, brahminical superstition, not far removed from nastiness, from cacothymia. And by the way, cacothymia, it says in the dictionary, is an unbalanced state of mind, mental or glandular disorder with a big Google engram spike at 1816. Great job with the digging out there, Mike. Thanks. Cacothymia. Hmm. I am concerned to hear it, said Jack. Pray, is it catching? He added, with a private but sweet-natured leer. 
So it is the odd couple. We've got the messy one, and we've got the we've got the the the, the tidier upper one. And w- wouldn't it be a shame <laughs> if you were to catch my tidiness disease, Stephen? That's what Jack's saying at this point. <laughs> so not only is Stephen uh, an, an untidy and slovenly uh, roommate or housemate, he he's got a new fault here. So. And this is a very, very unusual moment, and it it kind of comes and goes so quickly. Let's just dwell on this for a second. Stephen suggests some music, what with Jack's friend's piano being in the cottage here, and also a German flute that he's found handy. And I'm like, wait a second. Stephen on the German flute. I'm going to have to re-sing some stuff that we talk about later on in the canon. And Mike, this may be giggle. This is the only time we ever hear of Stephen playing the flute. Uh, I think this probably has to count as a short-lived authorial experiment by Patrick O'Brien. We never, ever come back to the idea, thank heavens, that Stephen could play the flute. So Jack's kind of picking things out on the piano, and Stephen hears him playing this Hummel sonata, the sonata that we heard of as being played by both Diana and Sophie a couple of chapters ago. And we go into Stephen's reflections here on what he thinks hearing Jack playing the Hummel. And it's a really striking, really deep reflection, I think, on Jack's state of mind. He says things like, oh, he's playing it so badly. He says, the inversion will be worse. And I'm not sure O'Brien's using the word inversion in quite the right context here, but never mind. Um, He might have said counter subject or development. But even so, Stephen's listening to how the music unfolds under Jack's fingers, and he's distressed by what he hears. Jack's playing it so sweetly, Stephen sees it as a sentimental indulgence. He says he thinks Jack can't make even his fiddle utter anything but platitudes except by mistake. And this piano playing is worse since all the notes on the piano are true because the the mechanics of the piano are making it all come out sweet and in tune. And he describes this playing of Jack's as being like a 16-stone girl playing, except that Jack's face is not set in an expression of sentimentality, but of extreme suffering, as Jack seems to be trying to imitate Sophia's playing. And Stephen, carrying on this reflection in his mind, says, I don't really know if Jack is consciously imitating Sophia's playing, and this is a Jack who knows what real music is. This is a Jack who, who can play like a real performer with real musical insight, but he's playing here like a simpleton. And this gets Stephen to wondering, is, is, does Sophia do the same thing? Have I, Stephen, misjudged her playing? And perhaps he thinks both Sophia and Jack being otherwise quite alike play this way because of what he calls a feeling that they may not go beyond certain modest limits. So he's kind of, calling up the idea of these poor English people being a bit repressed. But the consequence of this is that Jack is now all kind of blocked with his emotions and he's about to be overcome. This is Jack, he says, a man filled with true poetic feeling but has his channels blocked and can can only come out with what Stephen calls ye flowery meads. And all of this is just too much for Stephen. He is the best of creatures, thinks Stephen. I love him dearly, but he is an Englishman. Emotional, lacrimose, which of course means given to tears. As if to keep the tears from falling, then Stephen intervenes. He cries out, Jack, Jack, you have mistook the second variation. And Mike, I I love this. Like always, when O'Brien takes us into what the characters are thinking, we get some really, really powerful writing. But there's this really 
striking contradiction. We've got the intimacy of their friendship. They know each other well. They love each other dearly. Stephen knows Jack and his musical personality well enough that he can hear all these nuances in the playing. But at the same time, he's profoundly irritated at hearing how Jack's disordered mental state is trampling all over the music. And Stephen's kind of caught a little bit between two sides of his character. What's more important, musical enlightenment and correct performance or empathy for his friend? And just at the minute, those two feelings are colliding in Stephen, I think. I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. And, and it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it at this point. You know, later in this chapter, I was thinking about Jane Austen's sense and sensibility. And I thought, oh, here it is again. Sense yeah. and sensibility. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> this different. All right. So we'll come back to that, too. Jack is very upset at Stephen breaking in on him. And he says he was playing it right. And then he jumps up and he walks emotionally up and down the room. And the text says, looks strangely at Stephen. And, and you know, I kept thinking, we've talked with Steve Morris about examining these moments, going, what could that mean? What could that mean? And I think this is one we could examine at length. Uh, yeah. but, but we just don't have a whole lot of time here. But, you know, what does he mean by that? But in a few minutes later, you know, after a few more turns, he smiles and suggests that they improvise, as he says, we used to do off Creek. Yeah. And there's this little funny back and forth, you know, Stephen says, well, what about St. Patrick's Day? And uh, Jack's saying, you know, what's that? Stephen plays a few bars. He says, oh, you know, we call it bacon and greens. And I think Stephen is not at all happy about that. So he says, well, we'll, we'll do something different. And they they settle on this Hosier's ghost. Uh, uh, they improvise on this ballot. And they're, you know, it sounds kind of like we've heard before. They're they're handing it back and forth. They've got these different variations. And then they move into other things. They're singing this ballad. They're also singing some of the folksal songs that they've heard so often at sea. And O'Brien yeah. lists the lyrics to one of them. And I, I, I was digging behind these and I thought, wow, I wonder what O'Brien's trying to tell us here. Why did he pick these two pieces of music? This first one, Hosier's Ghost is a story of the dead and brokenhearted admiral. And it says 3,000 of his men's ghosts from the 20 ships that he was with there who died of yellow fever blockading uh, Portobello, a port in the West Indies. You know, they're all rising in this ballot to haunt this Vice Admiral Vernon because he actually takes this same port 12 years later where they all died. They were forbidden, Hosier's ships were forbidden by orders from taking the port since they weren't at war with Spain yet, but they didn't want the the, the gold galleon to get back. And they actually lost 4,000 men to fever while they're waiting with no fresh supplies, no relief, no change in order. Vernon was you know, sent back years later with orders to take the port, and he did so, and he did it with six ships. So clearly, you know, they could have done it easily earlier. Uh, and, and the ballot, I think, was meant to criticize governments in action. Uh, we can we can use social media to post those lyrics in there. And then the second one, the one that that O'Brien listed the lyrics for, is Captain Barton's distress on the Litchfield. And again, I'm kind of thinking, okay, yep, certainly it would have been sung on ships and everything. It would have been a, a folks song. Yeah. This was when the 50-gun HMS Litchfield wrecked on the Barbary Coast in 1758 due to a navigational error. Her master had her positioned 105 miles off the coast as she hit. So, 
you know, bam, big. And the captain and her crew were slaves for 18 months there before finally being ransomed. And I'm going, oh, my God. What? <laughs> oh, right. Okay, finally, our heroes are playing music again, and they're playing this music. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of a warning here for our yep. heroes. Maybe there's a little bit of some of the kind of the underlying mood here. Yeah. You know, yes, we're back playing music again. It's not Baccarini we're playing. It, it, it's, it's not love songs. It's disaster ballads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, So the party is coming, and they eventually shake off this little musical moment, and back into domesticity to get themselves organized for the party. Jack helpfully sews a button on Stephen's coat. He fixes Stephen's wig up with some flour. He says, you look okay by candlelight, <laughs> which is what people say to me all the time as well. <laughs> um, and off they head to Queenie's party. And Stephen's wondering now, why is Jack wrapped up in this black cloak? And Jack tells him the story about this news article having beaten them home. So he's now at risk from all these uh, debt collectors. Stephen wonders then, is it really worth the risk to get arrested just to attend this party? And Jack points out that Lord Melville is going to be there. I have to keep my naval interests in play. There'll be all these other admirals in the house. So it's a place where I need to be seen and where I can conduct some business. So with this constraint in mind, as they reach the house, Jack can't run straight in because there's a line of coaches ahead of them. There's a crowd on the street with all these people watching the, the fine guests arriving and as they kind of edge forwards, his driver and the drivers behind them say, go on, get out. So finally he steps out into the crowd and hitches this cloak even further up his face. And Jack is really anxious about being seen and recognized here. The crowd are all curious. They're saying, who is this person? And meanwhile, Jack's old friend, Hennage Dundas, who'd recently been made post, and by the way, is the brother of Lord Melville. Hennage Dundas comes up and taps him on the shoulder and phew, it's Hennage. So they're all together. And in they go to this party together. And Mike, to begin with, this is all quite friendly, right? We're going to meet some old friends here, but we have some new faces to get to know as well. We do. And I love that scene, Ian. You know, I can just imagine here's Jack trying to stay hidden and Henry just crawling across the crowd. Hey, Jack. Jack Aubrey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, no, no. Well, Queenie, Lady Keith, takes Jack right in hand and introduces him to a Mr. Canning. So the, the first of, of a couple of really interesting characters we'll meet in this chapter. Here's Mr. Canning. They're at the buffet. And Jack is thinking, you know, boy, he really likes the look of this man, this impression of strength. And, and he's thinking to himself, you know, this guy would be an ugly customer to have against you. And Canning it turns out, is a Bristol merchant. And this is the first merchant that Jack has ever met outside of, you know, kind of being in their place of business. And Canning says how happy he is to meet Captain Aubrey. He's known his reputation for years. He once wrote him a letter about the Cacafuego action in 1801, but he didn't post it because they didn't have a common acquaintance. And he thought it would have been, as he says, the mere noise of uninformed admiration. But then he explains that it wouldn't have been wholly uninformed because he's cruised a couple of times on some of the privateers that he's outfitted in the last war. And Jack says, oh, were you, you, know, were you ever in the service? Canning, who's kind of amused, says, me, me? No, no, I'm a Jew. And Jack says, oh, uh, ah. And, and, and as, as he's confused a bit, he looks off a little bit and he sees Lord Melville looking at him from the doorway. And so he bows, greets the first lord. And then Canning continues saying that he outfitted seven privateers for this war now, and he has the eighth modeled after the Boulogne building on the stocks currently. And he knows Jack 
was on the balloon, faced off against her. And he's asking him all these questions. And he kind of concludes with, do you think she could carry 24-pounder carronades and 18-pound chasers? So yeah, I really like this ship. Jack had really liked this ship. And now I want to put really heavy armament on it. Well, Jack is like drooling. He's delighted to hear this. An English frigate-sized privateer. Only the French had built them before. And, and Jack is excited. He says, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure she would and then some, but, you know, I really have to look at her draft to see what she would. But he's clearly excited here. Well, then Canning, I think, springs his real purpose here. He says, well, you know, you know, her lines, her weapons, that's all details. Everything depends on the commander. And in, in the past, he's used local men, used to smaller crews, but they're not going to be up to this task. He says he would value Captain Aubrey's advice beyond anything to help him find a bold, enterprising captain, a thoroughgoing seaman to run his letter of mark, just like a kingship, but with no blacklists, no hazing, and very little cat. And he says, now, I don't believe you, Captain Aubrey, are a great believer in the cat. And Jack says, no, no. I find it doesn't answer for fighting men. And Canning says, oh, yeah, fighting men. Let me tell you about the prime fighting men that I recruit for my crews, all these West Country born men born to the sea, more volunteers than I ever have room for, all ready to be led by the right captain. Oop, okay. Mm. <laughs> We're getting back to the theme here. He says, I'm offering a post captain's pay, allowances for a 74. And I guarantee $1,000 a year prize money. None of my captains have ever made less. And this ship will certainly do much better with its two to 300 men. No time blockading, no running messages, no carrying troops like a kingship. Enormous potentialities. And Jack agrees. It is enormous potentialities. And Canning says, but where can I find my commander? And then he tells Jack, well, now, if Jack can think of any man or a former shipmate or perhaps, and he says, well, you know what, <laughs> whoever it is, I'm going to give him a free hand and back him to the hilt. Jack says he'll consider of it. And Canning gives him his card, writes his address on it and says, I'm going to be here all week and I would be most grateful for a meeting. Boy, and and I'm thinking, boy, this this is like candy to a baby. This is like, oh my oh, gosh, yeah. you know. If, if Stephen says Jack can't, you know, defend himself against a direct approach by a woman, I'm thinking, how about this direct approach? This is pretty darn good. No, that's right. And and by the way, a, a thousand a year that that's right up there. That's probably double the private income of any single Williams sister, and it's ten, twenty times more than Diana's got coming in. So it's serious cash. This is not just pin money. Wow, and. Having laid down this very, very, only just barely decently concealed hint for Jack, Canning walks off and more people are gathering around the buffet. So it's no longer possible to have just a private chat. And Jack is thinking that maybe this offer could not have been any more direct if it was going to have any kind of decency in terms of respect for his rank as a serving officer. He's taken really well to Canning. He likes him. Jack says that he'd rarely taken to a man with such immediate sympathy at first sight. And he thinks he must be really rich to fit out a huge letter of Mark like this as a private man. He'd never doubted Canning's honesty and wonders then at him at all this new stuff that we've learned about Canning's situation. And Queenie interrupts him. She comes over, takes Jack's arm and says, oh, come on, Jack, you're behaving like a bear. 
<laughs> Cue the uh, boom, <laughs> laugh track. Jack then says, well, what about this guy, Canning? Tell me more. And he learns from Queenie that Canning is rich. He's a good man. He's got many friends in the Prince of Wales' set, but isn't a flash cove. He's no more of a scholar than Jack is. And remember, Queenie knows because she educated Jack. Right. They walk then into the gallery and they see ah, the Williams family, or at least part of it. Mrs. Williams and young Cecilia are sitting there. And for a minute, Jack, seeing them out of context, can't place them. He says they belong to another world in time, another reality. And Lady Keith is murmuring something in Jack's ear about Sophia, but Jack can't hear well enough. And Lady Keith says, where are the other girls? And Mrs. Williams is explaining that Sophia is taking care of Francis, who has a cold. And Cecilia, meanwhile, is whispering to Jack, she didn't know you would be here. So there's clearly some intrigue among the sisters about whether Sophie can get back in touch with Jack. Mrs. Williams, well, we'll have to see what she's making of all of this. Meanwhile, Lady Keith tells Jack that Lord Melville, the First Lord, is throwing out a signal. <gasps> and this is catnip for Mrs. Williams. She jumps up. <gasps> Melville is a celebrity, of course. Which one is the First Lord? Which is he? And Melville gets pointed out. And so Jack goes up at least a whole notch, I think, in Mrs. Williams' eyes here. And Melville says to Jack, come see me tomorrow instead of next week. And having said that, he turns and takes his leave. And I love the description of Jack's response here. The response as, as noticed by the people around him and the response of what's going on inside him. Jack's face and eyes as he turned back to the ladies had a fine glow, a hint of the rising sun. By the law of social metaphysics, some of the great man's star had rubbed off on him, as well as a little of young Canning's easy opulence. He felt that he was in command of the situation, of any situation, in spite of the wolves outside the door, his calmness surprised him. What were his feelings beneath this strong, bubbling cheerfulness? He could not make it out. So much had happened these last few days. Sometimes you receive a knock in action, and it may be your death wound or just a scratch, a graze. You cannot tell at once. And Mike, there's some real self-examination going on here by Jack. Very unusually for him, a bit out of character, I think. Maybe we're going to see some more of this in the chapter. But meanwhile, Jack has to get his head back together and uh, and turn his attention to the Williamses here. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting. Maybe part of it is some of where his head is at the moment. And part of it is that Jack's in a different place here. So yeah. he notes that Mrs. Williams looks very different than she did in Sussex or Bath, quite provincial and dowdy as does Cecilia. And Mrs. Williams says that she read of Jack's escape in the paper and hoped his return meant everything was now well with him and asked how he came to be in India. Jack explains that he wasn't in India at all, that he and Stephen had indeed made for the continent, as Mrs. Williams had thought they were going to do, and had almost been taken by Bonaparte there and then caught the Indiaman in Gibraltar. Hmm. And Cecilia says, well, how about Dr. Matron? And Mrs. Williams echoes the inquiry about the worthy Dr. Matron. I'm thinking, boy, she is off a little bit here because you know, yeah. Stephen was never the worthy Dr. Matron. No. Well, Jack says, he's well. He's, he's in the other room speaking with the physician of the fleet. And he says how you know Matron had nursed Jack through a devilish fever that he caught in the mountains 
and he dosed him twice a day until they reached Gibraltar. Cecilia says Spain must have been really romantic with all the ruins and the monks. And Jack says, well, the most romantic thing he saw was the rock, Gibraltar, at the end of their journey and the orange tree in Stephen's castle. A castle in Spain? cries Cecilia. And Mrs. Williams says, nonsense. He, he means a cottage with a whimsical name. Jack says, no, no, castle, towers, battlements, marble roof, the whole thing. The only whimsical thing being the bath at the end of the spiral stairs, all carved from a single block of marble and the orange tree in the court surrounded by arches. There's romance for you, says Jack. <laughs> Williams asks if Dr. Matron is a man of property. Jack says, certainly, a thumping great estate with his main place down toward Lairda. Jack apologizes, realizing that he hasn't asked about Mrs. Villers and hopes she's well. Well, Mrs. Williams completely dismisses Diana and says she thought Matron was only a naval surgeon. Jack says, no, no, he's a man of considerable estate, a physician who decided to sail with him to see the world and be paid by the king while doing it. And Mrs. Williams is thinking to herself, wait a minute, castles in Spain. She's heard of them before. Are they a good thing or not? But but then she remembers seeing Lord Melville so affable and and decides they must be a good thing, you know, in, in, in all this company. That must be a good thing. And and then she says, well, I certainly hope Dr. Matron will call. And I think looking at Jack, she corrects herself. Oh, hope you will both call. <laughs> and uh, then says, you know, I'm staying with my sister, Pratt, in number 11, George Street. Jack says, well, I'm on official business, but I'm sure Dr. Matron would be delighted and asked to be remembered to Miss Williams and Miss Francis. Mrs. Williams starts to tell the precautionary lie about Sophia's engagement, but quickly backs off saying, well, well, there's nothing official. And Cecilia pokes Jack with her elbow and says, there's Di. Ooh, Diana. Oh, ooh. well, Ian, before we get to Diana, Karen, who was helping us with the Latin in this chapter, also pulled out this phrase, castles in Spain castles in Spain, you know, that they, they were going on and on about uh, Cecilia here, castle in Spain, and this one, castle in Spain. And a- interesting, you know, when we talk about today building castles in Spain, it's sort of like building castles in the air or something like Flights of Fantasy. Yeah. But it turns out, and, and I love this, Karen was kind enough to send some fabulous research behind this phrase that back in 1235, there was a poem, Roman Della Rose, and in that poem, in order to make the rhyme work in the French couplets, they use this phrase of castles in Spain. Chaucer in 1400 translates this poem, and, and over time, the usage changes. But listen to the poem that it comes from in Chaucer's translation here. Thou dreamest thy beloved one lies naked in thine arms, become thy wife, and decks thy joyous home. And so shalt thou rejoice amain in building castles then in Spain and find delights in joys unstable, built up of lies and foolish fable. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, you know, sort of digging under these songs earlier. Now this whole castles in Spain, castles in Spain. Karen, thank you again. Wow. Wow. Oh, so, fantastic. you know, is this Stephen's dream escape? The Jack's the one that's going on and on about it now. 
Is this for Jack and Sophia? Is this Stephen and Diana? Is this all built of lies and foolish fable? I don't know. Joy's unstable. I, I think for sure. There's there's at least fifty percent of the story arc right. for Jack and Stephen set right now. Joy's unstable. Oh, blimey. Now, m- meanwhile, with this really profound association with the, the idea of a castle in Spain and what that means for the potential kind of self-deception and worry for the future, there's also a chance to pull Mrs. Williams's leg. And as we're going to see later on, the, uh, the, the two men here, Jack and Stephen, both indulge in a little bit of Mrs. Williams baiting. Now, Diana walks in between these two men and she is looking beautiful. She's turning heads all around the party here. And O'Brien says that Jack's heart, which had stopped when he saw Mrs. Williams, now beat to quarters. A constellation, a galaxy of erotic notions raced through his mind, together with an unmixed pleasure in looking at her. Her being Diana, not Mrs. Williams. He notes how well-bred Diana looks. She doesn't look pleased with the men who are crowding around her. Cecilia says one of them is this guy, Colonel Colpoise, who we've heard about before. He's Admiral Haddock's brother-in-law. Di is staying with Colonel Colpoise in Bruton Street. And meanwhile, Cecilia fills in some commentary here. She says, oh, how beautiful he is talking about the other man, not Colpoise. And we wonder for a bare second, who is this other man? And we get the picture filled in for us. Mrs. Williams, staring at Mr. Canning, for that, for it is him, lowers her voice and speaks behind her hand to Cecilia, telling her he's not beautiful. He's a J-E-W. And Cecilia kind of blows this off for a moment. She says, well, I wish I had a bow like him following me around the way that Canning had been following Diana so far tonight. And another one of these guys hurries up to the party here, to Diana's little circle, carrying champagne, holding it out like an offering for Diana. And we've got Diana with a little crowd of kind of hopeful men around her. And this all looks like Diana kind of flaunting it a little bit, and then Stephen Maturin appears. And now Diana's face changes instantly to what O'Brien calls straightforward, almost boyish delight, as she gives him both of her hands and says how glad she is to see him and welcomes him home. And Canning and Jack and the soldier watch this scene intently, but nothing seems to give them unease. And there's a little signal there in O'Brien's description, boyish delight. Like, is this a platonic kind of brother-sister, how-are-you thing, or is it a little bit more? They take the pink colour of Diana's face to be spontaneous, uncomplicated pleasure and note that Maturin is looking a bit seedy. He's got this unaltered pallor, absent expression. He looks plain, rusty, neglected, and undarned. And all, all of this conspires to set probably a false sense of security in the minds of people like Jack. And as the text says here, Jack relaxed in his chair. He had got it wrong, he thought, with a warm and lively pleasure in his mistake. He often got things wrong. He had set up for penetration, and he had got it wrong. So, Mike, there's a a huge misunderstanding in play here. Jack thinks Stephen has absolutely no amorous interest in Diana. He thinks that the field is therefore clear, potential for conflict ahead. And and, and by the way, a, a nice little... A little phallus joke there for us, setting up for penetration. Yeah, I wonder what he was talking about. 
So what, what are we meant to think about when it comes to Diana? She's looking glorious. She's in spirit. She's being chased by men. And who's the symbol? Who's who's the famous figure that we're going to see portrayed yeah, next time? Great, great question. So Cecilia says they mean to go and look at the Magdalene. That's what Dr. Matron is pointing towards. So a painting of Mary Magdalene. Jack says, oh, yes, certainly. A Guido, I believe. No, sir, said Mrs. Williams, who understood these things better than other people. It's an oil painting, a very valuable oil painting, and not <laughs> quite in the modern taste. I thought, oh, my God, you're right. You know, Jack's calling out the, the artist. Mrs. Williams saying, no, no, it's not a Guido. It's an oil painting. So Cecilia goes after them, but Mrs. Williams kind of holds Jack back saying, I want you to tell me all about your Spanish journey. And we're going to come to this painting and, and the and the artist back in a minute. Jack can't really tell her much about the journey, he says, because he, he was sick most of the time. And no, he doesn't know what kind of leases they have or what type of return on capital. He supposes that Matron's estate was pretty big, taking in, he says, a, a good deal of Aragon and Catalonia. But he says it's sadly infested with porcupines that they hunt with leather umbrellas kind of held out to fend off the quills. So he's really having <laughs> a great time. And Mrs. Williams says, oh, men, you're always so taken with sport and you should be paying more attention to rack rents, fines and enclosures." She says, I'm enclosing Mapes Commons. And I thought, wow, I had missed this too in, in the last yeah. reading here, in closing Maeve's comments. Well, we will dive into this topic much deeper later in the canon. All I can say is when you get to enclosures and Mrs. Williams and Maeve's comment, of course she is. But Miss Williams stops because she looks up and right there she says, ah, here comes the doctor. So Stephen's been kind of in hearing distance for this last little bit of conversation here. And it's funny, we were rem remarking earlier on that the conversation between Stephen and Diana looked kind of just fr friendly, but maybe platonic. S Stephen's now responding to the greeting from Mrs. Williams. <laughs> Stephen's phrase rarely betrayed much emotion, but her effusive welcome made him stretch his eyes. Her first question set him right, however. So, she says, I hear that you have a marble bath, Dr. Maturin. That must be a great comfort to you in such a climate. And Stephen turns on a dime here and gets into the leg pulling of Mrs. Williams. I love this. Ah, certainly, ma'am. I conceive it to be Visigothic. Not marble. Visigothic marble, my dear madam, from a baptistery destroyed by the Moors. And you have a castle? Oh, it's only a small place. I keep one wing in order to go up there from time to time. For the porcupine hunting, no doubt. And Stephen is either in on this instantly, in kind of instinctively, or he was listening from a distance to the previous conversation because he's straight in there. He bows and says, oh, yes, and, and also for my rents, ma'am, in some ways, Spain is a more direct country than England. And when we say rack rent in these parts, rack rent is what we mean. Why? We make them pay for the use of the instrument. And I love how he picks up on Jack's little leg pulling and just toys with Mrs. Williams and she has no clue. Now, we've had Stephen encountering Diana, and next it's Jack's turn to get a moment to talk to Diana at the buffet. Canning has gone. There are now two soldiers hovering in his place. And Diana gives Jack her free hand, and the greeting that we say is as gay, cheerful, and undisguised as the one that she had given to Maturin. And she says how much she's missed him, 
says they'll go and look at Lady Keith's new painting, this Magdalene that we've been talking about. And she asks Jack what he thinks of it. And O'Brien, with tongue fairly firmly in cheek, talks about what we see when we look at this painting, the Magdalene. The Magdalene, he says, had not yet repented. She's standing on a quay in front of some blue ruins. There are blues in her robe and in the seas. There's a blue dress which is blown off, exposing uh, a flimsy white garment and an opulent bosom, which we notice because we're looking here with Jack's gaze, of course. Having been at sea for some time, Jack is mostly staring in, in the direction of the bosom and shifts his glance looking for something else to comment on, hoping in vain to say something ingenious or witty. And all he can come up with is, uh, very fine, such a blue. And meanwhile, a vessel in the corner of the painting catches his eye and he explains the position of this little ship, saying, oh, she'll never stay, not with those unhandy Latines, and there's no room to wear, so there she is, on a lee shore. Poor fellows. I'm afraid there's no hope for them. That is exactly what Maturin told me you would say, cried Diana, squeezing his arm. How well he knows you, Aubrey. And, hmm, another little signifier of the friendship between Jack and Stephen, even as Jack's coming up canoodling with Diana here. Let's talk about this painting, though, for a second. So there, there are a few different painters called Guido, and there are a few different painters called Guido who painted Magdalens. But we think that this painting could well be by Guido Reni, an Italian artist of the 17th century. And we think the painting might be called The Penitent Magdalene. And we could pop out a link and, a, and an image link to this. Um, he, Reni, Guido Reni, did quite a few different Magdalene paintings, some of them penitent, some of them less so. Um, the symbol of the penitent Magdalene was a was a bit of a specialty for him. He did various versions of this. Um, he had Magdalene's that included a skull. He had lots of subjects along with them in the pictures, like, interested in penitence and ex interested in themes of death and stuff as well. Now, many people on the internet have tried to figure out exactly which Rainey it might have been. It doesn't seem like there's any one particular. There's certainly not any one Magdalene by Guido Reni that includes all these blues and also a ship in the background. So it might well be that O'Brien was just having fun with the idea of the representation of a woman, a woman of Magdalene's character, by the way, in the society of well-to-do British civilians and sailors who have to find something to say about her. So we're not sure exactly which Magdalene she is, but it seems like it's attracting the attention of the people in the audience for all sorts of different reasons. Um, remind us a bit then, Mike, about the story of Mary Magdalene. Exactly what kind of a figure is being represented here? Well, it's really interesting. Yeah, like you're saying, one one of Guido Reni's paintings was what's a penitent Magdalene. And Jack saying this one obviously hasn't repented yet. This this one with the breast out and everything. But um, this whole idea of penitence, this was one of the reasons this was such an iconographic thing, because this was like a Catholic against Protestant thing. This whole idea of Mary Magdalene, that her story being that she was a prostitute who repents and then, you know, becomes a disciple. But the fact of the matter is this whole story about this repented prostitute is, is actually not in the Bible. This, is, mm. this was kind of an invention that came up when uh, Pope Gregory I in 591 
kind of got some Marys confused, Mary Magdalene, this one, and Mary of Bethany, who was the unnamed sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet in, in the Gospels. And he had preached this Easter sermon, which then resulted in this widespread belief that Mary Magdalene was a repentant prostitute or, or you know, promiscuous woman here. Well, this guy went on for a long, 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 long time. And in 1969, Pope Paul VI finally removed the identification of Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, the sinful woman from the general Roman calendar. So hmm. he said, wait, we got this wrong, but it still persists in popular culture. So for me, it was a really interesting way to say a couple of things. Now, one, I, I would say that if you go biblically, Mary Magdalene probably was the main woman in this core of women that traveled with Jesus and the disciples and probably one of his biggest financial backers. She was probably a wealthy merchant, somebody who had money, held the purse that paid Jesus and the disciples expenses. So a very different view of who this woman is. And in the context of this story, this idea of, you know, who is Diana? Which one of the Magdalene's might she be? Is this a Diana and Sophie contrast? Um, I, I, I think that there's so much to be made from this and for O'Brien to tease us with, oh, here's, here's Mary, you know, kind of before she repented here. So I, I love this, but I, I love the way uh, O'Brien leaves it. Diana said, you know, well, what do you think of this? And, and then Jack's trying to say something. And then Jack and Diana both admit that they really both know nothing about paintings. And then Diana notes that at least Magdalene has no lack of admirers. In other words, like whoever she is in the painting, a good mark is that she's she's got a lot of people coming in to see her here, right? Which is <laughs> Diana going, you know, that's what I'm going for, right? But she says, well, I'm hot. Let's go find me an ice. And as they walk out, Mrs. Williams tells Cecilia, it would really do Sophie good to see Diana, the way she has her hair all outre, the way she's walking about, she says, as bold as brass. We know which Magdalene Miss Williams sees her as. Yeah. And she knows with protest that Diana has taken Aubrey's arm. So here we've got a little bit of the Magdalene contrast playing out in real life. Well, that's only half the chapter. Whew. I think we wow. probably better take a break, eh? Ian? <laughs> I, I think we better. Let's 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 go recover ourselves. Thank you for sticking with us. We're looking forward to more in this chapter. We'll be right back after a little tiny break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So welcome back from the break. Lots of intense feelings and speculations and observations happening at Queenie's party, but we're not even done yet. There's this conversation to continue here between Diana and Jack. She asks Jack about his plans. Will he be staying? And Jack then gets to recount to her this offer that's been made by Canning. And she's very enthusiastic. A privateer's just the thing. And Jack winces as an admiral walks by. And he tells Diana that he doesn't like this particular word privateer. But of course, Stephen has often said to him that he should not be a prisoner of words. 
And Diana brushes all of these concerns off. She says, oh, it's just like taking service with the native princes in India. Nobody thinks any the less of you, and everybody envies you the fortune you make. And she says, this would be perfect for a man of spirit like Jack. Her cousin, she says, knows Canning. The family is absurdly rich. He's a straightforward guy. He's brave. And as she's about to leave, she drops a hint to Jack that Jack has maybe reached the front rank of all of these different pretenders and suitors here at the ball. She says, oh, you can call on me tomorrow at Bruton Street. I'll be alone. And this is a, a very kind of vampy thing here. Come up and see me sometime, why don't you? And Jack tells her about his situation. There's a writ out against me. I can't walk about London. And my, Diana's reaction here turns this scene immediately for me. It's really cold. It's really cutting. She says she never expected to hear that Jack Aubrey was afraid of something. She had introduced him to Colonel Colpoise so that he could call on her. She's going like, oh, I've, I've done my part here. And Jack says he's under orders to go to the Admiralty tomorrow. So he asks if he can come on Sunday. No, sir, says Diana, you may not. I do not ask men to come see me so often. He must consult his own safety, she says, in a very kind of belittling, condescending way. I'll be gone by then. She asks the major, one of the soldiers that's hovering nearby, to help her find her cloak and see her to her carriage. And, Mike, I, I, I really... Well... Love is the wrong word. I, I think this is a really great moment. It's really staggering. And if you've got any hope that there could be something for Jack in this connection with Diana, which, to be honest, I'm doubtful about, but anyhow, this is a real killer blow. It's all been, so far, about the men kind of playing the situation. Jack, along with all these other soldiers and everybody, is kind of seeing, you know, who could pull a move on the good-looking dame? And Jack had seemed like he was about to gain the upper hand over Stephen, who's in the friend zone, and all these other male contenders. But in a second, as soon as she gets the idea that his courage is lacking, Diana chops his legs out from under him. So she likes the idea of a certain kind of man as her lover, if she likes a lover at all. And certainly, this is the case for everybody except perhaps Stephen Maturin. And when it looks like Aubrey doesn't fit the mold of the right kind of man that she has in her conception of a, of a partner she drops him like a stone and mike this is uh what do you think Sh shades of another female that we've heard about before in the canon yeah i could couldn't help but be reminded of kind of the molly hart before and after yeah. scene in master and commander here yeah sorry jack you no longer make the cut yeah wow and i think you're right he's like Oh, afraid. Never thought that's a word I'd hear from you. And and so here is Jack now in low status, kind of following this procession of people out that are following Diana. And included in that procession is Stephen Matron. And it says that after Diana has now left, they've gone down the stairs, she's gotten into the coach. Jack walks slowly back into the house with Stephen Matron. They went up the broad stairs, making their way against the increasing current of guests who had taken their leave. Their conversation was fragmentary and unimportant, a few general remarks. But by the time they had reached the top, each knew that their harmony was no longer what it had been these last few months. Bam. Oh, boy. So not only has Diana now chopped the legs out from under Jack, Stephen may not know that. 
But I think seeing both of these guys trolling along like lapdogs behind, they're now aware that there's something going on here. Well, Stephen says, you know, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go visit some friends at the Physical Society. He gives Jack what he calls the common purse and begs him to be sure to get a coach at the door when he's ready to leave and take it all the way home. So again, even though Stephen, clearly something's gone on between them here, Stephen's still looking out for Jack's interest here. And then he says, I recommend warm milk when you get home to relax your fibers. I want you to be rested and ready for your admiralty meeting in the morning. And I'm just, man, my heart goes out to him. I just love Stephen. My God, here you are, Jack, you Sorry, I'm about to say a bad word. And still, still, he's taking care of him. I love this friend. I love having a friend like this. Yeah, yeah. So the the war milk apparently is, is tried by Jack, but his mind is far from placid. His fibers are all knotted up. He writes Stephen a note to say that he's gone out. And out he goes onto Hampstead Heath. Now, Mike, these days, Hampstead Heath is a kind of nice rolling park in a very genteel suburb of London. But Hampstead Heath was a pretty wild place to be out on an unlit night. And even so, Jack is out there on the heath. He's walking fast. He's working up a sweat. His cloak comes off because he's getting hot. And he's rethinking back through his conversation with Diana. This is the first time that he's ever refused a direct challenge. He blushes as he remembers how he had whined about Oh, there's a writ out against me. And he thinks that he's put himself in a really low position here. He wonders, though, how she could ask so much of him. No real friend would ask that much, would ask him to put himself in such clear risk. He knows that in his place, she would have come bailiffs or no bailiffs because she has this kind of courage for kind of flaunting her appetite for risk. And he ponders going to see her anyway. He thinks, well... If I accept Canning's offer, I don't need the Admiralty. That's a place where I've been shabbily treated. Maybe I won't be made post at the meeting at all. He's rationalizing away to himself here. And being made post is the only thing that would wash away the injustice that he suffered. He thinks of all the small, undesirable posts or positions that the Admiralty might offer him only so that they can say, well, we tried with so many men with a tenth of his claims are promoted over him while his midshipmen are being left on the beach and his recommendations ignored. So he's building up this narrative in his head of all the injustices being piled on him. With Canning's offer, on the other hand, he, Jack, would have a free hand. He'd have all these bountiful oceans. He'd get rich again. And that brings him back to the idea of Sophie and the marriage proposition that's kind of sitting there on pause. He had repressed all of his thoughts about this since he'd left for France. He knows that in his current state of affairs, he's not a marriageable man, and a legitimate marriage with Sophie is as far out of his reach as an admiral's flag. She would never have done this to him, meaning Sophie would never have demanded that he place himself at risk. He imagines that last evening with Sophie, all the grace and sweetness and gentleness of her character, how she might have protected him. He wonders what he would have done if she had been there, perhaps turned tail and hidden until he could escape. And he's horrified thinking what would have happened if he'd seen both of them, Diana and Sophie, there together. He thinks of how Sophie might have looked at him, thinks of her gentle, questioning eyes wondering, 
can this scrub be Jack Aubrey? Mm. And I think, however he desires, in many ways, a connection with Diana, he really wants Sophie. And he's got at least some degree of shame in his actions, in the, the way he's led Diana on so far. At the same time, he acted the way he did toward Diana because he knew that he couldn't have Sophie and a little out of spite when he thought that she'd gotten engaged and not knowing at that time that Stephen had this romantic interest in Diana. So he got himself into a real mess by behaving a little bit kind of impetuously here. And as Stephen said, he just can't turn away from a direct challenge, especially one from a woman, especially a beautiful, desirable woman who is in turn desired by all these peers in the military world that he presumably wants to see himself among. So now he has to deal with a situation that he's created for himself. Now, Mike, th this is a lot for a Jack Aubrey self-analysis, but we're not done. We've got to go deeper with Jack here. Right. And this is, this is you know, in, you and I have talked, this is just kind of an amazing scene. We don't usually get to go deeper with Jack here. So Jack is thinking, you know, he should really order his thinking about Sophia and Diana. He'd been thinking about Diana. Sophie, as you said, had popped into his mind and then he'd followed that. And he's, you know, he's thinking too about Stephen. He says, Stephen has often blamed him for being muddle-headed, for not following his ideas to their logical conclusion, as well as for being sentimental and for being hypocritical, being a hypocrite mm. himself. But to Jack, as the text says, to think clearly in such a case about, you know, kind of comparing and contrasting pros and cons on women, it, the text says, it was inexpressibly repugnant. Logic could apply only to a deliberate seduction or to a marriage of interest. So, boy, here, you know, we've never had a better statement of sense and sensibility. We'll come right. back to it yet again here. But Jack knows it's of the first importance to take his bearings. So a nautical analogy here and to find out the depth of his present feelings. So I'm thinking this is great. Jack is really going to try to sort his situation out here to really kind of pull this apart. Think about how he feels about these two women here. And again, as you and I were both saying, oh my God, have we gotten this much introspection on Jack Aubrey anywhere else? I, I just love this here. Right. Uh, I mean, we've gone whole books with, with less self-examination from Jack Aubrey. It's really intense and he's really thinking it through. I think there's something very specific that O'Brien's trying to work through for himself here as well. And we'll talk in a minute about where I think that comes in. But meanwhile, the scene gets interrupted. Nothing this intense lasts very long in O'Brien without something else coming in to change our perspective. And here it is. Jack hears a voice. Your money or your life. And a little small guy, a thief, steps out. And Jack is on him in an instant. He throws his cloak in the man's face. He shakes him, gives him a big left-handed clip around the ear. The man goes down. And Jack grabs the man's cudgel and stands over him, looking Jack at his own split knuckles. He yells at him to get up, checks on him, believes that he's dead, and looks at this poor, wretched little brute and thinking, this is a very incompetent footpath. This is a very incompetent thief. And he sees one hand of this guy moving slightly, so he's not dead after all. Jack wraps the guy in the Jack's own cloak to keep all the mud, blood, and perhaps worse off his clothes, and thinks, well, I'll carry him off to Stephen. Stephen's 
been known to raise the dead as long as the tide hasn't changed. And Mike, besides being a bit of a sort of light relief tension breaker here, there's something really interesting in Jack's response to this footpad guy. At one point, when he's dealing with the footpad and wrapping him up in the cloak, Jack says the phrase, Jesus, what a bore. And this really seemed off to me. Like this phrase in Jack's mouth at this point, besides being a rare moment of Jack blaspheming in the text, he doesn't do this very often. He did it just a page or so earlier, by the way. What this really stood out to me as, it's a very non-18th century expression, very out of character for Jack. Oh, Jesus, what a bore. I think this is, in fact, a very characteristic phrase for a certain part of society, for the part of British society that Patrick O'Brien came from. An upper-class or upper-middle-class Brit would say, what a bore, but when they say that, they don't mean the situation is boring to them. It's a backhanded, posh person's way of saying, this is a rather trying or unpleasant situation, but I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. As in, you might say, oh, my house burned down and my collection of Jane Austen first editions went up in flames. Oh, such a bore. And maybe this is me with my oversensitive ear that the Brits have for for, for, for class signifiers, but I really do think this is a upper-class person's expression of frustration. And I think this is not Jack Aubrey speaking. Maybe this is somehow a rare case of O'Brien imprinting onto Jack Aubrey either himself, Patrick O'Brien, or someone else that O'Brien's got in his mind who he's imagining to be in this situation. Not the not the footpad situation, the Sophie and Diana situation. So either it's very deliberate or it's a very, very unconscious giveaway that this isn't only Jack Aubrey's interior monologue we're hearing. It's somebody else working through some experience that's important in Patrick O'Brien's mind. Yeah, I... I, I love that, Ian. I, I yeah, absolutely. And and it syncs so much with this conversation that Jack had had with Christy Payet earlier. That yeah. Jack really is caught in this, if you will, bore yeah. indeed. You know, and, and what a fascinating way to express it. This uncharacteristic phrase for Jack, for O'Brien to have inserted that in the text here. Steve Morris, someone I hope we can call our particular friend, our friend at the Cinephiles, our, our friend at, at Enterprise Incidents, the Star Trek podcast, has said to us one time, you know, people think that writing is just putting words on a page, but what we, he, Steve was saying as a writer, are actually trying to do is create feelings in the reader. Often, he says, the best way to create those feelings is through what isn't said and this is part of Patrick O'Brien's true greatness. I guarantee he spent hours, days, weeks, years thinking about what's going on inside these characters. He might not tell us exactly what is happening, but the fact that he's thought it all through is what makes these characters so fully realized. And I'm thinking, yeah. well, I think you're absolutely spot on here. He is so into this, has been so through it, that that phrase has popped out and somehow entered the text and a guy who is just famous for being able to do a Jane Austen pastiche like nobody uh, or whoever, you know, Dickens, whoever he wants to. So I think we are in that, this fully, fully realized character and getting that because we were just about to say, all right, let me suss up this Sophie, Diana, Jack thing. Boom, your money or your life. But here it is. What a bore. So 
And, and, and meanwhile, we've, we've got Jack cogitating on his relationships, and we've now got a half-dead footpad to take care of. Where's this going to be? Well, Stephen isn't home, so Jack leaves this guy tied up very nonchalantly. Oh, just put him over here. Tie a knot around him. It'll be fine. Goes looking for something to eat, because clearly hot milk isn't going to cut it. And off he goes to sleep. <laughs> so Jack is sleeping. The footpad is, is bundled up in the corner. Stephen comes in at first light with some food for breakfast. And he looks at this wide-eyed footpad who's now awake and the sleeping Jack. And totally deadpan, never misses a beat. Ah, he says, Jack, I've got you a beefsteak to set you up for your interview. I strongly suggest that you take off your clothes, sponge yourself all over, rest, eat the steak. You'll feel a new man. And he notices one of the consequences of this experience on the, uh, on the heath is that Jack now has a louse crawling up his collar, a clothes louse seeking promotion to being a head louse. And where there's one, he says there are going to be many more. And Jack realizes, oh, this is this damn footpad. The footpad then enters the conversation. He's clearly not in a good way. He hangs his head. He's deeply sorry. He's ashamed. And Jack says, well, Stephen, you take a look at this guy. I gave him a thump on the head. I'm, I'm going off, like you said, to wash and to sleep. And it's really lovely, this little vignette of the, the story of this guy that's brought to life here. We, we can't go in and out of all of it, Mike, but give, give, us, give us the highlights. What, who is this guy and where does he come from? Yeah, well, you know, Stephen looks at his wound. He sees there are others' injuries, and, and he starts having this great conversation. By all means, you know, go back and read this. This is several pages. We're going we're gonna to jump right through here. But this guy had lost his livelihood translating books. And he, you know, he'd done this, he kind of, you know, self-made person because this publisher went back on a deal with him. And then the publisher went back on it. He tried to collect, even though he didn't have a contract and the publisher tarnished his name in the industry. So unable to get work, he'd lost his place to stay. He'd worked tirelessly to avoid debt collectors, whose ways he now knows very well. Mm. And by the time this has happened with Jack, he hadn't eaten for five days. So in the midst of that, he tried his hand at robbery. And, and the few times he tried <laughs> it, he'd been ignored or beaten up in each attempt. And, and Stephen feeds this very polite man as they talk. And they, you know, he learns more about his background and his skills. And the man describes his desire to work. You know, he absolutely would rather be working. He lists his many writing and translation accomplishments and describes his work ethic, which is excellent here, you know, before he had gotten dropped on this project and not been paid for all this investment he'd made. It was going to be a big long-term thing. He bought these special books, these dictionaries, everything. And, you know, Stephen learns that he works in many languages. He's translated nautical books and, and talks about journeys at sea. He's very careful to learn context and background. He's always been sober, punctual, and hardworking. And he raised himself up that way from being a bastard. Ah, ding, 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 something mm. Stephen Matron can relate to. And, of course, he knew all about debt, not only from his own things, but he had been born in a debtor's prison and had spent time in several over the course of his life and with his, I guess, with his mother probably. So he knows debt collectors' ways. He knows how to best give them the slip. And this, among everything else, really intrigues Matron. So Stephen says, well, 
Perhaps you could give me a succinct account of the debt collection law as it presently stands. Stephen's like, okay, the universe <laughs> has delivered me up an asset. And as a good intelligence agent, I'm going to recruit you so I can help my friend here. So I love it. Now, he mentions in so many of the books that he had worked on, some of which sounded fascinating, but I thought, oh my God, I don't have time to do this. But thankfully, you and Karen Ruff did. Yeah, thank you again, Karen. Really fascinating and weird stories. O'Brien thinks these clearly relishing the delicious and ridiculous titles of these books. The Universal Directory for Taking a Life of Rats was written by somebody called Robert Smith, published in 1772. A book called The Unhappy Birth, Wicked Life and Miserable End of That Deceitful Apostle Judas Iscariot. That's actually the subtitle of a book called Divine Justice and Mercy Displayed by a cleric called Thomas Gent, also published in 1772. There's a book called Plan for the Education of the Young Nobility and Gentry, which in the story here, Scrivener claims to have written himself, was in fact written by somebody fairly famous, the Anglo-Irish actor and teacher Thomas Sheridan, published in 1769. And there's something odd here. Lots of these references when we go looking for them seem to be for books that were published in Dublin within a year or two of 1770. And you wonder where this comes from. We know that Patrick O'Brien's Irishness was a bit fanciful, but you know maybe O'Brien had seen the library shelf somewhere in Dublin, or he somebody sent him a case of bookstore rarities from a bookshop in Dublin, and he just had all these, and and out they came, or out the index cards came to get dropped in here. Lots of them appear to be also just just fanciful. It's, it's kind of a shame. I was hoping to read more about the case of the Druids impartially considered. That one sounded like a, a page-turner. But the, there's a tenuous but very tantalizing hint in one of them. He talks about translating a work called The South Seas by a French author called Brusquot. And translation of obscure French authors is something that O'Brien knew something about. But we searched for Brusquot, and there's nothing online about Brusquot apart from a reference to a very lurid story in the 20th century of a French diplomat called Bernard Bourisco. Go look into this if you don't mind polluting your browser history. Bernard Bourisco was a French diplomat who had a notorious affair in the 1960s with a Chinese opera singer who turned out to be a spy, among certain other things. And uh, the affair was exposed and written about in the 80s and 90s. Very lurid details, not for a family show, but let's just say that this opera singer turned spy Opera and spying and sex seems like too much of a delicious combination for O'Brien not, not to have hidden it somehow. But again, from, from the timing of all the various books, I suspect he didn't know about it. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, here, once, once again, with O'Brien, there's always, you can go so deep, so deep. It's so wonderful. Yeah. Well, back in the story, Stephen wakes Jack up in, in time to prepare for his appointment. And unlike his usual, you know, awake in an instant self, you know, Jack is finding that he has to bring himself slowly into the world and leave all his dreaming thoughts of Melville and Queenie and Canning and Diana behind. And Stephen asks Jack what he's going to do with his prize, meaning, you know, this 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 uh, foot pad that he's left behind. And Jack says, well, you know, I think I'll just turn him over to the constable. Stephen says, well, you know, he'll be hanged. I'll tell you what, I'll give you 12 and sixpence for him. <laughs> and Jack can't believe Stephen has that much money. But then he says, well, well, wait, wait, you know, no, no, you're not going to, I'm not going to take any money from you. You can have him. And he says, Stephen, are you going to dissect him already? 
you know, Jack's used to Stephen buying these corpses warm from the hangman. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Stephen's like, no, no, no. Well, eating breakfast, Jack tells the footpad that he's been sold to the doctor and he must obey the doctor's orders or he'll find himself locked in a cast and thrown overboard. I think Jack assumes the whole world understands all nautical references here. And Jack asks Stephen, you know, will we meet later in the afternoon? Stephen says, well, I'm not sure when I'll be back. And he says, I may look into seething lane. Hmm, come back to that. Yeah. Even though he says it's probably not worth it until next week, looking into seething lane. Okay. Interesting. So Stephen is off on his own mystery errand in London. And meanwhile, here's Jack going to see Melville. He heads up the stairs into the First Lord's office. The initial signs are not good. We have some jeopardy on display here. There's a fat officer leaning against the rail, weeping with two porters from the hall, completely aghast at this display. And there's a silent Marine watching the scene from the landing. So... I don't know what goes through Jack's mind at this moment, but pretty soon he's in there with Lord Melville. And Melville tells Jack that he was really shaken by this emotional display that he's just seen, presumably of the same lieutenant who's out uh, in the hallway crying. It had lowered his opinion of the officer. He knows that Captain Aubrey prizes fortitude and hopes that he's not shaken then by some disagreeable news. So he's basically saying, steal yourself, Jack. And we all give a little gulp on behalf of Jack and wonder what's coming. And it's not so bad. He says, Jack, I can't make you post for the Cacafuego action. I can't set a precedent by going against my predecessor. But there's a project left over from the former administration, an experimental vessel, a ship called the Polycrest. Now, we'll talk more about Polycrest and her design and history later on. But this is the ship that was originally designed to carry some particular secret weapon. He says, I can rate it as a sloop rather than a post ship, even though it has 24, 32-pound carronades, so it's got quite the weight of metal. And he offers Jack the chance to look at her draft at the drawing of this ship. And Mr. Eldon, the designer, had designed it to sail somehow against wind and tide and had spent a fortune on plans and models. So there's a lot of information. And Jack says, well, I've, I've heard of her. She's known in the fleet as the carpenter's mistake, she has two pointy ends, head and stern, just alike. Two main topsails, which is clearly an abomination. A false bottom, no hold. She has sliding keels. She has sliding rudders. And she's being built in a private yard that has no particularly savoury reputation in Portsmouth. And the First Lord points to some modifications on the plans that have been made in green ink and thinks that with those modifications, the board will decide to declare her serviceable for home waters. So Melville's going to assign her to basically do do scut work in the English Channel for guess who? Admiral Hart, who has mm. a squadron anchored in the Downs off of Kent. And for some reason, he's not presently disclosing her captain needs to get off and go to Portsmouth straight away. So he needs to hasten her fitting out, her commissioning and going to sea as quickly as possible. So here's the non-plum, Mike. And uh, Melville then turns to Aubrey and says, well, do you wish to be considered for the appointment? And again, we get a little look inside the mind of Jack Aubrey here. Yeah, and I love this. Jack takes a minute and kind of weighs it up in his brain. He says, okay, she's a theorizing landsman's vessel. She'd been built by a gang of rogues and jobbers. She was to serve under a man he'd cuckled and who would be happy to see him ruined. Canning's offer would never come again. And I think, well, 
all right, you've sussed it up pretty well. Yeah. And O'Brien tells us that Melville knows all of this, but he's just sitting there watching Jack closely. And Jack continues thinking to himself, this is shabby treatment. If he takes it, he's going to find it really hard to justify himself with Lady Keith. You know, she's been making all this, you know, t- trying to get him something better. And, you know, he's going to only end up with... Meanwhile, he's going to find it hard to justify with his own conscience. And I'm thinking, yep, yep, you got it, Jack. Yeah. And then he opens his mouth and says, if you please, my Lord, I should be most grateful. There you go. <laughs> what? What? It's not so you know, bad. After, after everything on the walk last night, after this summary in your head, <laughs> he takes the polycrest. He stays with the Navy. He doesn't even talk further with Canada. He doesn't say, give me a night, give me, you know, anything. Boom. And Lord Melville is ready to get on with it. Yeah. So Jack's status as the hero, as the man of decision and action and courage, is taking a double hit in this chapter. He caved in front of Diana, and now he's, from some respects, he has caved in front of Lord Melville. So poor old Jack. Now, Lord Melville is keen to close the deal. He says, make it so. So a bit of Jean-Luc Picard there. Make it so, he (laughs) says, and tells Jack, don't thank me. It's no plum. I wish it were. You'll have more firepower than a frigate, and you'll certainly distinguish yourself. And when you do, the board will be happy to make you post on that fresh occasion. And we're not quite done with the jeopardy yet. He tells Jack, by the way, that the first lieutenant has been appointed. This is a Mr. Parker recommended by the Duke of Clarence. Now, those of you who know your British kings and princes' history, those of you who've read ahead in the canon and been with us, uh, in the last few books, in Blue at the Mizzen, you already know that the Duke of Clarence is a real-life member of the British royal family. He's the third son of King George III and is destined to succeed his older brother eventually and to be crowned King William IV, but in 1830, a long time after the events here. So, sorry for the spoiler if you weren't sure what's going to happen uh, to the Duke of Clarence. Anyhow, Parker is clearly the kind of first lieutenant that Jack is going to have to rub along with if Parker has the kind of patronage behind him that Jack clearly doesn't just for the moment. Melville says to Jack then, which officers and followers would you like to bring? And Jack, of course, requests his surgeon, Stephen Maturin, and Thomas Pullings, the master's mate from the Sophie. He passed for lieutenant in 1801, so he's able to take the step. And Melville says, do you want him to be made? And Jack says that this is the one big ask that he can make. And he says, yes, please. He's basically thinking, this is what I'm going to sacrifice the rest of my political capital, my patronage on, is the step for pullings. Bless him. Melville says, okay, what else? And I think Jack is thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm almost done with my asks here. So he does name two midshipmen. I'm going to guess they're Mowat and Babington, but we don't know. Melville agrees and says, give me the name of the surgeon. So overgoes Maturin's name. And at this mention of the name, Melville looks up. And another clue as to Stephen's prior activities and his profile that he has with the Navy board. Jack says, ah, you you may have seen him at Lady Keith's and says he's my particular friend. And Melville says in a very noncommittal way, I I mind him, meaning I remember him. The orders are going to be written out and they can be sent over unless Jack would rather wait for them. And turns out that Jack's got them in his pocket right now, right, Mike? Well, well, he does. He does. However, as as they're talking, not a hundred yards away from them, Stephen and Miss Williams, meaning Sophia, 
are walking along in St. James Park, looking at the coots in the ornamental pond. As you do. And, and Stephen, like I was the first time I was there, I was amazed at some of the birds that he says he's often crawled across freezing bogs to have a look at, only to have them fly off, are just flying in freely there. And Sophie, as Steve is telling her all about the coots, says, oh, poor coots, they always look so cross. <laughs> and, but she's got other things in her mind. So as Jack's over there with the First Lord, she says, you know, is, is that the Admiralty? And uh, Stephen says, oh, yes, yes, it is. And Jack, he says, probably knows his fate by now. And I'm thinking, ooh, it's an ominous way to put it here. Yeah. And, and Sophie says, well, might we see it a little closer to see it in its true proportions? And I'm thinking, yes, <laughs> yeah, of course. That's why I want to get closer. Oh, and then that. she says, you know, not uh, apropos to nothing, Diana said Jack was looking thin, not well at all. Diana called him diminished. And I thought, oh, wow. Wow. Here you are back to that cold chop your legs out from under your, uh, I think, yeah, diminished, right? Yeah. Jack was not the man she thought he would be. And uh, you know, perhaps she was wanting him to go into business with Canning, become rich, set her up and everything else. So he's diminished. But Sophie takes this as Sophie would, that she's concerned for Jack. And Stephen says, well, Jack has aged, but he still eats for six and he's still far too fat, although I wouldn't call him a beast anymore. And he tells her that he wishes he could say the same for her, but that she's thinner. Uh, but he's thinking to himself, that kind of takes away you know, the last hint of childishness and brings out a nice hidden strength in her features. And he thinks that you know, she's now, and the text says, a young woman wide awake an adult, and I'm thinking, hoping a little bit out from under her mother's thumb here. Well, Stephen consoles Sophie, says she wouldn't be at all worried about Jack if she'd seen him at Lady Keith, that he had lost the rest of his ear in the Indian, but Stephen had sewed it back on. Well, Sophie's like, oh my God, you know, he lost his ear. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. And then Sophie says, well, you know, what a great friend you are, Dr. Matron, to which he replies, well, I sew his ears on from time to time, sure. And she says she's so glad that Captain Aubrey has Dr. Matron because, speaking of Jack, he sometimes hazards himself very thoughtlessly. Yeah, Stephen says he does mm. too. And I'm thinking, yeah, and we're not just talking about during battles here, I don't think. No, indeed. No, no. Well, Sophie says that she could not have borne to have seen him last night because she was so unkind to him when she last saw him. So maybe this is why she stayed home to take care of her younger yeah. sister. She says, you know, the thing about being unkind, she says, it's so dreadful to be unkind. One keeps remembering it. Boy, oh. there's, there's, there's something to keep written on your heart before you're unkind. Yeah. She starts to cry. Stephen, now the difference between Sophie and Jack, Jack starts to cry. Stephen hollers at him for screwing up the music. Sophie starts to cry. <laughs> Stephen looks at her with deep affection. The church bells sound. Sophie realizes, oh, my God, I'm supposed to be back home. Mom's going to be upset with me. Stephen helps rush her back home because while she's running, she keeps glancing over her shoulder at the Admiralty. So in case we're wondering, Sophie still very much attached to Jack. But as you say, in Jack, meanwhile, has been waiting a long time and is standing there waiting for his orders here, right? Right. By the way, before we move away from the conversation with Sophie, I, I love these conversations that Stephen has with Sophie. This kind of brother-sister thing is very close. It's very sweet. And 
like if there was ever a world where Stephen can have a platonic relationship with a woman and not be tortured by Diana, it's just having a, you know, being the unofficial big brother to Sophie. It's it's really, really lovely. Absolutely. Anyway, as you say, Mike, we're back with Jack. Jack waits a long time at the Admiralty. He does, as we said, pick up orders for him. He picks up orders for Stephen, which we need to remember. And he stands there, having now spent all of his ready cash on customary presents, on tips, in other words, for the guys in attendance there. He has only what they call a clipped groat, meaning an old fourpenny coin with some of the metal shaved away. And that's got to somehow carry him across London to the Portsmouth Mail by 11 that night in uniform without being taken so that he can make his way to pick up Stephen at the cottage and then make this command with the polycrest. He can't leave the Admiralty as it currently stands because he doesn't know who's out there. He says he'd hang himself out of pure fury if he got taken now. And we get a little bit of extra anxiety here. The porter says there's a little cove in black with a scrub wig been asking for him by name. And who is this? Is this one of the debt collectors? Jack, watch this fellow out of the window for 40 minutes looking all around, peering into coaches, once talking with two much bigger fellows. And the porters are not happy with Jack. He had not yet produced the customary presence that they were expecting, but all of this talk had a smell of truth, and they took his part against the civil power. And one mentioned that this cove with the cauliflower ear is still out there. And this confirms the identity. He says, ask the man to step in. And of course, it's our friend the footpad. So there it is. It's Mr. Scriven the literary man turned footpad, and he tells Jack that Dr. Matron says all is well in Seething Lane. By the way, Mike, we, we don't know exactly why Seething Lane is important. It seems to be a place that might once have, well, was once associated with the Admiralty, but is at, at this time in early 19th century, no longer. Something to do with the East India Company. Maybe there's a, a local equivalent of Dr. Ramis there that Stephen needs to go talk to. Anyhow, all is well in Seething Lane. We never find out exactly what that means. The message is for Jack to go and join Stephen at the Grapes in the Liberties of the Savoy, which, of course, is one of the places where Jack can hang about and not get arrested. A coach is fetched. Jack hides on the floor in a cloak that Dr. Maturin has decontaminated for lice. And Jack apologizes very politely to Scriven for the blow to his ear. And as they're riding along, Scriven points out that they're entering the Duchy of Lancaster now, which is neither London nor Westminster. The writs are different, so Jack is, for the time being, and in this place, free to move about the place. Scriven names himself to Jack. His full name is Adam Scriven. And as they arrive at the grapes, here Jack is safe, stepping out of the coach. And uh, Jack very cheekily asks Scriven to pay the coachman. All right. he's, he's very glad then to see Stephen. And we have this moment of just cheerful happiness between Stephen. They've got a ship. They're going to make their fortunes. Jack then turns to Stephen and says, well, what luck have you had? You look pretty hipped. And Stephen, smiling in spite of himself, says that he's negotiated a, a, a backed merchant's bill, an endorsed bill of exchange written on his Barcelona merchant. He's only had to give a 12.5% discount and he hands over to Jack 85 guineas. So they're in funds again. Thank you, says Jack. They call for a large dinner and for some champagne. And Jack sketches out the polycrest outline for Stephen in gin on the table. And he contrasts it with the offer of Canning's new ship, but realizes that he hadn't told Stephen about that either. So he stops and writes a note to get 
off to Canning to say, official business makes it impossible and so on. So he's trying to remember to be polite, even though his focus is now 100% on this new ship, the Polycrest. And he reminds Stephen of what a good impression he's had of Canning so far. Stephen, he says, needs to meet him. You'll like him. He's a perfect gentleman. You would swear he was an Englishman. And this is a really strange thing for us to hear Jack say. He's saying, ah, being Jewish, he's not really English. And Mike, I don't think anybody would say that a member of the Jewish community in England is not English. That's, that's, that's nonsense. But of course, this is a different time and it's a little bit of a different Jack. This is Jack Ashore, who's been hanging out with the people in the establishment. And nationality and identity were thought of differently. The, the legal definition of being an English citizen is not the same as the more nuanced version that Jack thinks of in his heart. It has some kind of cultural and ethnic dimensions as well. It's pretty chilling. You know, you can be wealthy and successful. You can be seen by women at polite society parties as quite good looking, but still be seen by somebody like Jack as an outsider, even in a offhand but kind of friendly casual way. By the standards of the time, I don't think Jack's attitude is very unusual. He's just expressing it clumsily. And it, it, it's interesting that we get this characterization of Canning as an outsider. Also, we've had this understanding that Scriven is an outsider and Stephen is an outsider as well with his identity and his illegitimate parentage behind him. There's, there's lots of outsiders and I think Jack is failing to understand all of them at the moment. Right, right. Right. Well, Stephen, I, I love this as Jack's gone on and on about Canning. Just a perfect gentleman. You would swear he was an Englishman. And Stephen says, well, that is a high recommendation. I no. think Stephen going, yeah, yeah, right, Jack. You know, right. Do you tell all your friends you could almost think I was an Englishman? No, no. Yeah, exactly. But he says, however, Stephen says, I'm already acquainted with Mr. Canning. Stephen tells him that he had met him at Bruton Street earlier that day when he called mm. on Diana after walking with Sophia in the park. And I'm like, you, yeah, I can hear. Whoa, 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 whoa. And a look of intense pain comes over Jack's face and he looks down and then asks, how was Sophie? And Stephen says, well, she's thinner, unhappy, but has grown up and looks even more beautiful than she was in Sussex. Oh my and, gosh. Ah, I couldn't help wondering to myself again, you know, a look of intense pain, missing Sophie, thinking how close he came to going to see Diana himself this morning and possibly getting arrested, never getting the ship, something else, thinking about his behavior with Diana, his behavior with, I don't know, you know, what is this thing? Anyway, they continue on with dinner. But yeah, and, and, and dinner normally means good times and character exposition and jokes, but this is a really awkward, tense dinner between Stephen and Jack. They're eating the fish course, they exchange a few bits of gossip about sturgeon, I think, and Jack then turns the question around and says, well, how is Diana? Stephen says, her spirits appeared sometimes elated and sometimes oppressed, but she was in splendid looks, and she too was full of life. He might have added, and of wanton unkindness. Wow. So Stephen is in the depths of you know, a really unhappy time with this connection that he has to Diana. And Jack is really blindsided by all of this. He says, I had no idea that you'd call it Bruton Street, which carries with it a little bit of a hint of some, some kind of menace here from Jack. Stephen bends his head. He nods. And Jack asks, 
were there many other people? Meaning, were you, were you alone with her? No, there were three soldiers. There was an Indian judge and Canning. And Jack says, ah, oh, yes, Diana told me that she knew Canning and then remarks on the duck course that gets brought to the table and then says, maybe we should send some of this duck down to Scriven and asks then what Stephen thought of Scriven and maybe they should send Scriven over to hold their places on the mail while they go and pack. And this really awkward conversation keeps lurching into familiarity and easy intimacy and then back into really cold misunderstandings. Stephen says, now, it will be safer if you, Jack, take a post-chase straight into the yard, go aboard the Polycrest immediately. Your name was in the paper today in a story about Queenie's party. So that's two newspaper mentions of Jack's whereabouts. His creditors will have noticed Mr. Scriven has been describing to Stephen how they operate. Ain't you coming, Stephen, cried Jack, pushing his plate away and staring across the table, perfectly aghast. I had not thought of going to sea at present, said Stephen. And right, you, you and I are both thinking at this going, what? Why? This is Stephen and Jack. What's happening here? Well, and it, and, and it almost goes, you know, bad to worse. Stephen says, well, Lord Keith had offered me the flagship as a physician. And I thought, is that maybe the seething lane appointment? I don't know. Anyways, but Stephen says he begged to be excused. He says, many things, you know, are here calling for my attention. And it's been a while since I've been to Ireland. And I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now it's just starting to sound like Stephen when he was taking his leave of Jack earlier in the book. And, oh, and next Thursday, I've got to wash my hair. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, well, Jack said he'd absolutely taken it for granted that they'd sail together. He was so happy to bring him these orders. He starts to say, but what shall I, and I think he's thinking, what shall I tell the Admiralty? But he, he checks himself. And in a lower tone, he says, I didn't have any right to make those assumptions. And very formally, he begs Stephen's pardon and says that he will tell the Admiralty that it was all his fault. I'm thinking, oh my God, this thing is just falling apart here. I hate this. Oh, it's so painful to read. And it's so imperfect. And it's so, there's, there's no resolution. It's agonizing. Jack really tries to kind of gather up the threads here, but it's just painful to see how he does. And he's, he tries to withdraw and recant. He says, a flagship after all, by God. It's no more than you deserve. I'm afraid I have been very presumptuous. No, 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 my dear, cried Stephen. It's nothing to do with the flagship. I don't give a fig for a flagship. Put that clear out of your mind. I should far prefer a sloop or a frigate. No, it is that I had not quite made up my mind to a cruise just now. However, let us leave things as they stand for the moment. Indeed, I should not like to have the name of a take-it-and-drop-it, shilly-shallying, mistish son-of-a-bitch at the Navy Board, he said with a smile. Never be so put about, Joy. It is only the abruptness that disturbed me. I am more deliberate in my motions than you sanguine, briny creatures. I am engaged until the end of the week, but then, unless I write, I will join you with my sea chest on Monday. Come, drink up your wine, admirable stuff for a little small shabine, and we'll have another bottle. And before we put you aboard your chase, I will tell you what I know about the English law of debt. End of chapter six. Wow. Mike, at end of the longest episode, the, you know, the longest single chapter episode in Lover's Whole History. Oh, what are you thinking now? 
Right, right. And and end of what I think is one of the longest chapters Patrick O'Brien ever wrote. But I, I will tell you, my immediate reaction when I finished this was, you know, I, I get anxious in the battle scenes sometimes, but yeah. I don't get nearly as anxious as them as I was here thinking about this friendship between Jack and Stephen being about to rupture kind of moving earlier in this book from Stephen's potential leave-taking, and then he stops and rescues Jack, takes him off to Spain. And then we get to this last scene, and uh, I, I thought just like Jack said, he would hang himself from fury if he'd come all this way and then gotten taken. I didn't want to go through all of this stuff in France and Spain and oh. come home and this wonderful time, they're, they're the eye couple together and have everything fall apart, almost like the minute they see Diana again. And, you know, I like Diana, but she's yeah. not worth this. <laughs> so, oh, gosh. However, uh, see this once again, Stephen going to bat for Jack again and again and again. And, yeah. and I just want to say, Stephen, I hope you have a great week before you join the ship. If, if in <laughs> fact, you do join the ship. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know that Jack and Diana have brought much of what? is happening between them on themselves. Right. We've gotten Jack's feelings, which we got to dip deeply into for a few of these pre-footpad moments. And and I can't help, still can't help, but feel for him here. It's a terrible place to be in. I certainly resonate with this from my, my earlier years right. <laughs> and earlier marriages. But anyways, to say, you know, I'm kind of longing for a Hallmark moment here. Like, could we just get the happily ever after, please? But I know that's not where we're going here. That yeah. you know, Jack has created this and this bore, as you say, yeah. he's fallen into it. And in true O'Brien style, because he writes life, not Hallmark, it's probably not going to be simply or quickly resolved. And no. I just want to lean over Jack and whisper, hey, buddy, hang in there. Try to stop doing stupid stuff. And believe me, <laughs> given some therapy, decades of repeating the same mistakes, you may start seeing these dumb things you're about to do before you do them. Maybe. Oh, so. Mike, that, that's a great message of hope for Jack Aubrey. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> oh, man. And... It's funny, isn't it? We talked about in one of our very first episodes how a little bit of the relationship between Jack and Stephen is written kind of like romantic comedy, you know, the way that they meet. But right. there's, there's there's nothing Nora Ephron. As you say, there's nothing hallmark about this. They're not going to kind of go to a nice cottage in New England and walk in the trees together. This is a real complex, deep, potentially flawed, potentially doomed relationship if this things go on as the way they seem to be going in this chapter here. Mike, you mentioned Jane Austen earlier on. This is, like we've all said many times, this is the canon's most Jane Austen-like book. And I guess this chapter is a very Jane Austen-like chapter. You've pointed out already that we're, we're talking about the themes here of sense and sensibility all over again. We've got the, the tension between practicality and rationality on one side, the sense part of the formula, and romanticism in relationships, the sensibility side of the formula. We've got both of these, these things playing out here. Individuals trying to make meaningful lives for themselves in a world that is unfair. And that don't only go for our main characters. That goes for Scriven and it goes for Canning, just as it goes for Diana and a bunch of other people as well. Pullings as well. Right. And we had Stephen's observations of Jack playing the piano all the way through to Jack's thoughts about Diana and Sophie and his feelings about it not being right to try and compare the two rationally. That's a very sense-type uh, idea. 
along with all of the mental and emotional back and forth at the Queenie's party, at the posturing and the kind of romantic appeal and the, oh my gosh, moments. And Jack's deep thoughts, as you say, on the Heath just before this attempted robbery. So much that's been set up for our characters here. I mean, we're, what, nearly halfway into the book. There's so much more still to come. In our chat with Karen Ruff, once again, thank you, Karen, for all your support for this week's episode. We're coming up to a moment where we're going to get a Bronte quote to stick alongside all the Austen ideas to remind us about the difference between Austen on the one hand, who was all about the comedy of manners and the kind of 18th centuryness of it all, versus the Brontes, who were romantic writers. And Austen knew the Brontes worked really well. She satirized it a bit in the plays of her youth and wrote counter to it in her own work. So we've got the Enlightenment world and the Romantic world kind of colliding here. And we're going to hear some more about that. Right. I think as a way to to kind of, uh, you know, not get the bends and come up more slowly here or get out of some of this, all all the tension. There was a, a moment I have to admire Jack here. You know, Dylan always said he was too commercial, always after the prizes in Master Commander, you know, not someone committed to honor and duty. But while Jack may have been backing down to Melville, I, and, and I was kind of pleased to see that even though Canning gives him every opportunity to redress all his grievances against the Navy, to come get rich, to come to the commercial side, I won't say the dark side, you know, Jack chooses <laughs> the Navy and the Carpenter's mistake. And I thought... And, and I can't help, I'm kind of looking forward in my mind to, to the rest of the canon again and Jack and his how he is the Navy through and through yeah. and how he yeah, loves yeah. the Navy and it's so much him. So love that, love that, love that. Oh. And, you know, we've talked about identity before. Jack is so tied up, his identity is so tied up with his role in the Navy. And here he is in a, in a moment where his identity as a Navy person is a little bit under question. And now he's coming up against identity questions for everybody else, including himself, Diana and Stephen and Canning and, and Scriven to a certain extent as well. Right. <sighs> so where we have been building up to and where I think we are now with this chapter is a real realization that there's this tension between Stephen and Jack. It has already been established. It returned to the surface at Queenie's party. Despite that, Stephen's taking care of Jack. He's preparing him for his interview. He's learning about all these debt laws. You know, the, the chapter closes on, let me tell you about the law of debt. He's taking care of making sure that Scriven is off to retrieve Jack. He's unable to really turn down Jack's insistence on sailing with him. He clearly planned to say, I'm going to go away and do my own thing. But when Jack says, but I was counting on it, Stephen clearly wants to stick around. And that closing scene's heartbreaking. We've got so much between the two of them left unsaid. Stephen's about to sort of break it off and do his own thing. But when Jack says, I was counting on you, Stephen recounts at the last minute. And then Jack withdraws his insistences oh no if you were going to be physician of the fleet you know go do your thing and steven they're both trying really hard to neutralize the differences and tensions but really nothing is being resolved it's all still there unsaid and skirted around um i'm busy at the minute binge watching a british tv show a reality show called the traitors uh and it reminds me of this you know everybody's kind of fencing and not quite willing to say what's on their mind and it doesn't in this situation help anybody as I, I i love the closing scene there and for you and me maybe it's it, it redeems the chapter and eases the tension a bit that they can kind of build things back up again it gives us hope for the future 
but right. I don't have that much hope for the next couple of chapters. I, th- I think there's some grim stuff coming. Now, there's a saying that has been said to be a, a Chinese curse. I think that's apocryphal, but nevertheless, I, I think it, it the flavor is right. You know, may you live in interesting time. I'm like you. Yeah. I, I think all of our heroes, all the characters that we love are definitely in interesting times. And I can't wait to find out what happens next. Ah, in that case, Mike, what do you say? Just a little bit more, Patrick O'Brien. With all my heart. <laughs> to go to the Admiral tomorrow. <laughs> Admiral Scott. <laughs> the notes in the text here say, to go to the animal. Right. <laughs> animal team. No, no, Admiralty. <laughs> Jack says, he's under orders to go to the Admiralty. Start again. <laughs> there you go, Sam. There's our <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>